in um, what C.S. Lewis called his most mature novel, a book called Till We Have Faces. There's a scene that pictures two sisters on a hill staring across into the distance, beholding mountains, the mountains of another country, a country, a place where they had never been, where they didn't know. It was the great unknown. One of them was about to be taken, about to be sacrificed to the gods, or at least given over to the gods. What the what the actual situation was to be, how it was to unfold, and whether it was to be good or bad, or, or, or what it was to be like, they didn't know. But they knew that this one sister was about to be taken over to the mountains to something unknown. The sister that was going to be left behind was in sorrow and anguish, and despair and Anger, but the sister that was to be taken had peace, even, even joy, anticipation of what this great unknown would hold. The sister in anguish was pressing in to find out why. The one to be taken responded this way. She said, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing, the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing? All the longing, the longing for home. For indeed, now, it now feels not like going, but like going back. Not not going, though it's somewhere I've never been. It's like going back. Even though it's a strange place, I know what's calling me. What lies ahead is home. It's the country that I was actually supposed to be born in. The place that I was created for. That's what all the longing has been telling me. My argument is that there is no better way to find our way home And to go back to the story of our creation. To see how we were created, by whom we were created, and for whom we were created. We are creatures. We are creation. In another place, this time not in a novel, C.S. Lewis writes this. He describes the situation as such. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He gives some examples. A baby, for example, feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. That's why you have the desire for food because food exists. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation 
is that I was made for another world. I was, I was made for the country that I was supposed to be born in, the home that I haven't yet known, a land that I haven't yet seen. My friend, if we are honest, do you not long? Do you not desire? Is there not an aching? For what is greater than all that we have known in this life? Do you not feel the reality that you were created for more? Do you not long to run faster, to fly higher, to climb the mountains, to explore the heavens, to search the depths of the ocean, to know so much more than all that we can know in this life, to laugh louder, to cry freer, to dance fully. Do you not long? Do you not long for a peace that does not pass away when the sun comes up on Monday morning? We, together, go back to the beginning. We go back to creation. I believe what we have in creation is a testimony. A testimony, a true testimony of what we were created for. See, somewhere internally, somewhere stamped on our souls is a testimony, whether it's a, a collective memory or, or some story that we've all been part of, that we know of, that all our lives, all creation has whispered to us that we were created for something bigger, something more, something greater. That even Eden itself that we lost was not the ultimate end, but that was just testifying to the greater reality still to come. But what the greater reality is, that we are testimonies of even in fallen creation, we will see, I believe, clearly in the first creation. Because the first creation points to the new creation. The ultimate reality where all of this is headed, where we are headed. Pastorally, as I have counseled you and many others who are not here, one of the things that I have seen time and again is that in the counseling room, there are no chapters of Scripture that I go back to more consistently than the opening chapters of Genesis. Here we see how God created, what God designed, the patterns for which and in which we were built. And so we want to spend our summer here to reacquaint ourselves with the God who created, to know, we want to know how he designed it, what it all means, where it's all going, what it is anticipating. And we begin this morning with just simply one verse, and I'm going to unpack it in, in hopefully one sentence that has three parts. The first part is simply this, our God created, our God created, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It is a simple, undefended 
declaration, with no apology, the simple truth and reality is that God exists and all that is seen, all that is known, all that is created was created by him. There is a God and he created everything out of nothing. God, grammatically speaking, is the subject of the first sentence in all of Scripture. The very first words that God chose to breathe out and to record for all humanity so that we can know Him, the first words on which all of the rest of scriptural revelation, everything that we know about God, hangs on are these words. In the beginning, God created. And He is the subject of His first sentence. Because apart from knowing him, we can know nothing. In the Hebrew, if you read through the first chapter of Genesis, one of the most striking literary features is simply the repetition of the word Elohim, the the title that's given here for God, every single verse. He's not simply the subject of the first verse. He's the subject of the whole first chapter because, frankly, he is the subject of the whole book, the whole of scriptures. He is the point. He is the God overall. The title that is given to him here in creation, Elohim, is a, is, is a title. It's not specifically a name. It's not the name by which he will come to be known to his covenant people in relationship. It's a title. Much like we use the word God, we can use it to speak of our God. Other faiths, other, um, other religions can also use the term God or gods to speak of other God or gods. What Moses is doing as Moses writes this by using the term Elohim is he's making a declaration that whatever God you think there is, in reality, this God who created reigns over all of creation. As the narrative is going to unfold, and we'll see this in in coming weeks, God creates with his words. This God creates everything that all the other nations are prone to worship. The sun, the moon, the stars, the oceans, the deeps, the animals... All of the things that you're going to make idols out of and seek to worship, God himself, this God, the biblical God, created. He is the point. He created all things. From the beginning to the end, we need to understand the very first application of this is simple. He is worthy of worship. For what he has done in creation, he must be Praise. Revelation chapter 4 at the end of scriptures. This is a testimony of the beings in heaven who are beholding God. This is what they say. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. At the end of this creation, the ushering in of new creation, we still won't be be able to get over the fact that our God created everything out of nothing. 
He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. He's the point, and he wants to be made known. As much as the title that's given to him in the first chapter is Elohim, the God over all, it's it's as if he can't wait to get to this self-revelation. In chapter 2 and verse 4, the first verse outside of this creation narrative, he's, he's revealed now as Yahweh God. Yahweh God, the covenant name, his personal name that he can't wait to give to his people so that they will know him in relationship. We're going to see in coming weeks that all of creation is designed specifically for this purpose, that God would have communion with people, such that as creation unfolds, the garden is being pictured as a a foreshadowing of a tabernacle, of a temple, a place where God will dwell together with his people. He is a God who wants to be known. And you see it even in these first verses, as God, the initiator, the Father, has in his mind to create all things proceed from him, and all creation comes through the word. As the New Testament will teach us, it is the incarnate word, Jesus Christ himself, by whom and for whom and through whom all things were created. And the Spirit is right there hovering over the face of the deep. Our triune God longs to be known from the first words of Scripture. He wants fellowship with you. He wants communion with you. He wants to be known. And so all of creation testifies to this reality. And we want to know Him. And really, it can can be no other way. His, his name that he's going to reveal in, in chapter 2, Yahweh, means I am. I am who I am. He is the only thing who simply is. Before the beginning, before time, when there was nothing, he still is. And so everything that comes into existence, everything that he creates, only is because he is. Everything only has existence in as much as it is bound to, tied to, directed to, and inclined towards him. This is the way all things were created. This is how he has designed it. In the 5th century, the African church father, Augustine, wrote this in his most famous work, The Confessions. And we often know this one line. If people don't know anything about the confessions, they usually know the one line. Our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. And I love that line, but I hate that it's divorced from its context. Understand the context in which Augustine is saying that is a reflection on the fact that God created us and that we are his creation. So listen to the quote in context. He says this. He says, man is one of your creatures, Lord part of your creation and his instinct how we're hardwired is to praise you he bears about him the mark of death the sign of his own sin that's that's the decay the aging process we are dying all of this is to remind us that you thwart the proud but still since he is part of your creation he wishes to praise you the thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content we cannot be content unless he praises you because you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you this is how we are created this is how we are designed our god made it this way there is no way to find peace 
There is no way to find contentedness or joy apart from knowing the God who in the beginning created. He is the subject. He is the point. He is the source. Here's, here's C.S. Lewis again. There's going to be lots more. I, I said to the projection people, I apologize. This whole sermon is like one long quote, one long series of quotes from C.S. Lewis. I apply, I've been reading them for the last year, so it's all just up here. i got to get it out. Uh, here's, here's how Lewis reflects on this reality that we are finding our source and our life in him. He says this, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. Here's, here's what he's saying. They are not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. God can't give you power or life or peace or contentedness or joy apart from him. He can't say, here, have this apart from me because he is the source of all of it. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality in God himself. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you will remain dry. If you want these things you must get into, you must get close in relationship with the God who created. Understand, God has not made all things about him. He is the point. All of it exists for his glory. But he has not done this out of his own self-interest. This is an expression of his self-giving mercy and love because he knows that the only way we can be warmed, the only way we can be wet, the only way we can be satisfied is to find our life in him. It's his mercy to show us this. He wants us to know him for our own good because here's the reality that the rest of the scriptures will testify to is that apart from him, we flounder. Apart from him, we flounder. I want to tease this out for you. This is what the Apostle Paul does. In Romans chapter 1, he says, let me show you what a society looks like as it turns away from God as creator. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth that they're suppressing? For what can be known about God is plain to them. How is it plain to them? God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since what? Since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God in creation testifies to who he is and what he's like so that we can know him. But if we turn away from him, here's what he says, we are without excuse. And when we turn away from him, when society turns away from him, verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Everything falls apart. And their foolish hearts were darkened, turned away from the God who said, let there be light. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the language of Genesis 1. Therefore, here's what happens 
Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. If you want to find a society that is decaying, that is eroding, that is falling apart morally, that makes no sense, that no longer has any coherence, look no further than a society that denies God as creator. The only thing that brings sense and order and logic to a culture is the underpinning that God created. Verse 26 of Romans 1, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves, in these acts, in the giving over of themselves to their depravity, they've received in themselves the due penalty for their error. In and of ourselves turning away from God, denying God as creator, we flounder. But with him, with orientation that God is creator, we flourish. Do you remember, uh, do you remember Hebrews chapter 11? Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the hall of faith, and there's all these, these, these harrowing stories of the heroes of the faith who, who have gone before and have trusted in God and done all these amazing things, and God has worked through them, and we rejoice in what we've seen in their lives. Before all of that, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3, here is one underpinning truth that holds up all of the things that they believe, all of the righteous deeds of the faithful. All of their faithfulness is based on this. They must believe this first. Hebrews 11 and verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We flourish when and only when we are oriented to God, our creator. The, the picture is, is something, like a, something like a sunflower that, that as it reaches up and sees the sun, beholding the sun turns and captures the light and the warmth, the heat of the sun and flourishes as it does. But if it is covered, if it turns away, it will not live I want to speak to you for a moment here if you're here this morning as a person who is not a believer, not, not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you were invited here by someone who is a follower of Jesus and you're wondering why they invited you here, why they keep telling you about Jesus. I, I want to make it clear to you that we don't get like brownie points from Jesus for talking about him. We don't get like a special place in heaven if we, you know, talk to enough people about Jesus. This doesn't give us like a gold star as a Christian or as a member of the church or something. The reason why the person told you about Jesus is because they understand this reality. That if you are going to flourish, to come to life, to grow, to sprout, you must be oriented to God. He is the one who created you and you will have no peace until you find your rest in him. 
It's the same reason why, why we Christians, why we do what we call devotions, why we open up the Bible and read it, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the evening, why we approach God in prayer, why we come to church on Sundays. There's no special points for doing these things. The reason why we do it is because we know we need to get warm. We know we need to get wet. And so we have to approach, we have to get near to, we have to get into the one in whom there is life, the God who created all things. We must know this is our God, and he created. The second part of the sentence is this. Our God created all things. Genesis 1.1, again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We are creative beings, right? Like, and when I say we, I'm using the like, all-inclusive we. I mean some of you are creative beings. I am not a creative being. If you saw me try to draw or something, you would, you would think it was one of my children. But my children are actually much better. Um, even the youngest are much better at drawing than me. I am not a creative person. But God has made us to be humans who do create. And I've seen the creations that some of you have done, works of art and poetry woodworking, all manner of creation. And it is beautiful. It is right. It is good. We're created in his image and likeness with an impulse to create. Even those of us who aren't good at it, we still want to. We still try. But we need to understand that God's creation is fundamentally different than our creation. When God created all things in the beginning, he created out of nothing. What we do when we create is we take and we rearrange elements that God has already built into creation, things that were already in existence, and we rearrange them and we put them together so that they become a new thing that is beautiful. But God, in the beginning, before there was anything, we can't even understand what that is. I was contemplating this week trying to picture in my mind, what would it be for there to be nothing? And the closest I could get is just to try to picture the absence of the things that I already know. But that's not nothing. But God, out of nothing, created everything, which means that all things are His. And the phrase, the heavens and the earth, it's a poetic device to... to, to Picture for us the things that are high and the things that are low, the things that are spiritual and the things that are earthly, the things that are invisible and the things that are visible. All that was created, he created, which means that he rules over all things. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's, it belongs to him and the fullness of it, everything belongs to him. Which means that he has authority over all things. It also means he has authority over life and death. The power to give life and to withdraw life from all of his creatures. So Psalm 104 verse 27 says this. These all, after surveying all the animals of creation, says these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, They die and return to their dust. Why does God have this kind of authority over every living thing? It's because he is the one who created them. This also means he's the one who created 
everything, it means nothing can stand against him. There is nothing that he created that can now stand against him or rule over him. Nothing that can defeat him or overpower him. In Colossians chapter 1, as Paul is marveling at the reality that God created all things through the word, through Jesus Christ himself, he says this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Understand what that means. There is no throne or ruler or dominion or authority that can ever stand against him because they were created through him and they were created for him. He reigns over all. The most incredible earthly power that you can imagine Our creator God stands over against and rules over all. Which, friends, this just simply means this. Again, if you are fighting him, it is futile. Let's just go greater to lesser. If the greatest of emperors and kings, the rulers and dominions and authorities, the spiritual powers in the heavenly places, if they all as created beings will fall against him, who do you think you are to stand against him? Our God created all things. He even created you And there is none of us that can stand against. None of us can oppose. Colossians chapter 1 again. The Apostle Paul continues. He says this. He is the the creator God. Christ himself. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body the church. He's the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. He's the point. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, here's the hope, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's futile to fight him, to stand against him or to oppose him. But if you submit to him, you can be reconciled to him through the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ looked at enemies, those who stood against him, those who lived in their sin and stood against him as enemies, And in mercy, he went to the cross and he suffered and died. And he said, I'm going to pay the price for you so that of all who are willing in all creation, any may come and find that there is peace, peace with the creator God, the creator of heaven and earth through the forgiveness of sins in the blood of the cross that was shed by Jesus. You this morning, if you have been fighting him, if you have been standing opposed to him, resisting him, you can simply turn and say, I'm bending the knee, I'm giving up, I'm trusting in Jesus, and there will be peace with the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created all things, the God who created all things. Here's the third part of our sentence, for an end. For an end, Genesis 1 and verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When I say God created all things for an end, I'm, I'm kind of doing a pun, trying to get like 
a both end thing in here. You know, there's different ways we can use the word end, right, to talk about ends. So, so we use a phrase, the ends justify the means. And what we mean by that is, is the purpose, the intended goal, the, de- the design, the desire, where we're trying to get. And I'm saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth means that God created all things with design, with purpose, with an end in mind. All things exist with this end in mind to testify to him. We've seen that already in Romans chapter 1. And I think you've seen this in your own experience as well, haven't you? I I can remember a a very specific moment in my life. In in one of those places, I don't know if if you're like me, there's special places where, where you're able to survey the beauty of God's creation, to see it, to take it in, and to meet with God, the creator. And I'm in one of those moments, and beside me is a friend who at the time was an atheist who I think was becoming agnostic. <laughs> and we were doing what men do, which is not talking. <laughs> it's great. We, we were sitting there, and no one was saying anything for like a really long time. It was glorious. And after a long time, all of a sudden, he broke the silence, and he just said, it really makes you wonder. We're, we're on the top of a hill. We're looking out over a lake, and the sun is setting, and the clouds are moving across, and the trees are blowing, and the birds are flying, and the grass is long. And he just took it all in, and he said, it makes you wonder. And I know what he meant by that, because we talked about it more. He meant it makes you wonder who made this what he made it for, what it all means, where it's all going. There was no theological argument I had to persuade him with. We just sat and looked at creation. God is testified to in everything that he has made. Everything good, everything beautiful tells us about who our God is. Here again is C.S. Lewis. He writes this. About the end, he says, when we see the face of God, when we in glory finally see his face for the first time, we shall know that we've always known it. That's the face. That's the face that I've always known. He has been party to. He has made, sustained, and moved moment by moment within all our earthly experiences of innocent love. All that was true love in them was, even on earth, far more his than ours. And it was ours only because it was his. The moments where we behold something of the transcendent reveal to us something of who our God is. What we will ultimately see when we see him face to face. Creation exists for an end to testify to him, but also to amplify our longings, to stir up our desires. Here's Lewis again. He says this, the books or the music in which we thought, we thought the beauty was located. I thought the beauty was in the books. I thought it was in the music. It will all betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them, what, cre- what came through the beautiful created things was longing. These things, the beauty, 
even the memory of our own past are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have never found. The echo of a tune we've never heard. News from a country we've never yet visited. All creation, all the beauty exists to amplify our longings and to tell us it's real. We just haven't got there yet. It exists for an end, to testify to him, to amplify our longings, but it also exists for an end. This is the other way we mean end, which is the end. When all things come to an end, when creation comes to an end. We use phrases like this in in English. We're searching high and low. We need need salt and pepper. It's out there, it's raining cats and dogs. You always know what's coming, right? Every once upon a time needs a happily ever after. And when Moses begins the Bible by saying in the beginning, it is implied that now we're waiting for the end. God began this and he's going to wrap it up as well. This will be a terrible reality for some. Here's how Peter describes the wrapping up of creation in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, we know this. The scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. It was flooded in judgment. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up, not for flooding, we know that, but for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So Peter admonishes us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. The heavens and the earth that were created in the beginning are awaiting an end. It will all be wiped out. And the day will be terrible for all who have not been reconciled to the Creator. It will be a day of judgment and sorrow and weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for those who have been reconciled to our Creator through the blood of the cross, It will be the beginning of new creation. It will be the beginning of all that we have actually longed for. The pulling back of the veil. The revealing of the flower whose scent we always knew. The hearing of the tune, the song that we never yet heard. Here's Revelation chapter 22 and verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, 
bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. He will, in the end, like he was in the beginning, be the point the object and the fulfillment of all desire, of all longing. It will be in that moment our great going home. Not our going, but our going home. One last time from Lewis. Our lifelong nostalgia our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside. It is no mere neurotic fancy. It is not neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing, the healing of that old ache. Our God who created all things, in knowing him, we will find the satisfaction of our longings. In him, we will find our way home. In him, we will find that he is home. Let's pray.